Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Atonement. Atonement was written by Ian McEwan and published in 2001. And the film adaptation was directed by Joe Wright and came out in 2007. And this is a highly requested episode. Yeah. Because our patron Deanna requested it some time ago in a bunch of other suggestions she gave us. And then our listener, uh, Maria Martinez Pina or Pina. Uh, also requested this episode. And then I feel like other people have also mentioned it to us. Like, Yeah, I it's <laughs> definitely come up in conversation before. Yeah. And I had never read it or seen the movie. And you hadn't either, either, right? No. Yeah. Although the ending was spoiled for me. Oh, my God. The very seriously? ending. It was one of those things where I have no idea where or how. I'm sure I was watching like a Cinefix video and they just vaguely mentioned something. Yeah. Because it was one of those things where I'm like, I think this is what happens at the end, but I don't know. Oh, that's awful. And I thought I was wrong. <laughs> but then. But then I was right at yeah. the very end. Well, luckily it wasn't spoiled for me. So I was able to experience this book and movie, you know, as it happened, which was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this story, its setting is very crucial. It's very specific, Mm -hmm. interesting. It is 1935, I think, uh, England, right before World War II. Yeah. And it takes place, the beginning at least of this story takes place at this great old house. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a name, does it? Like the estate. If it does, I don't remember. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's funny because the book kind of describes the house as being ugly. Yeah. I thought, I thought that was good. Yeah. I I (laughs) appreciate, I appreciate. And watching the movie, I'm like, is this supposed to be ugly or not? (laughs) I think they were just going for grand old house. I agree. Yeah. There wasn't anything that felt like mismatched or off about it. Mm -hmm. But then again, I'm not sure I would know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm not a very good judge of architecture. No. But we have, you know, this family, uh, the Talises, that live at this grand house. The um, father in this family, like, somehow works for the government, vaguely. Yeah. I get um, Little Women vibes from this story. Vague businessman. Vague businessman. Well, I was going to say, like, a father who's, like, just absent throughout almost the entire story. Yeah. Because he doesn't really matter. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And a mother who suffers, like, severe migraines. And so she's also not present. And so we get a lot. I mean, we start off with our main character, Bryony, who is 13 and is a budding novelist. Yeah. Uh, this is the first uh, written perspective we get in the book. Yeah. And the book is written very much from within the characters' heads. Yeah. There's just a lot of thoughts and reflection on things and kind of like stream of conscience and uh, going all over the place. That's very interesting. Yeah. And Bryony, I think, is written just super well. Yeah. Because she's, you know, she's very young. She's still 13, but you can tell she's incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. But, like, still. She's dumb, though. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. smart but dumb, which all of us have experienced in our life. You know, you can be intelligent, but you can be, you know, innocent and naive and not wise to the ways of the world, which is where Bryony is. And I think she's also at, at a particular age where she's just starting to discover her own, like, identity. Yeah. 
And she's also trying to figure out how other people see themselves. Like there's a whole part in the story where Bryony is thinking about how she has all these interior thoughts, right? She's so self-reflective. She's in her own mind a lot. She loves to write. This is such a big part of her life. And it's so difficult for her to imagine other people in the world also having such a rich interior life that she has. And I mean, this is a thought we've all had, right? Yeah, yeah. This is something we've all gone through in our life, whether we thought about it when we were 13 or whether we still think about it now. I know I do. Where you're like, I'm living... I'm the main character in my story, right? (laughs) Yeah. But like everybody else is also in that same position. And you're kind of like, but are they though? Yeah. Like this is my show. And I think that idea of like self-centeredness versus like empathy and trying to understand other people, it's such a fine line. And it's so interesting. And like getting that concept is so important to be able to be like a kind and decent human. And I think Bryony is like not there yet. Yeah, and also for being a writer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Being able to tap into other people's like inner yeah. thoughts and put your putting yourself in their shoes. And mm-hmm. and I love too because on one hand it is so relatable to have those like really deep and kind of like wild ideas and thoughts. But it also reads as kind of being sociopathic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's almost something kind of <laughs> disturbing about it where I'm like, I know. is Bryony a sociopath <laughs> or is she just 13? Or is she just 13? And I mean, kids kind of are, right? Yeah. You know, they're so self-absorbed and it's so impossible for their brains to comprehend other people, other emotions, which honestly is why literature and fiction and reading and getting other perspectives and diversity is so important because it helps children's minds expand and be able to understand that other people are people and have feelings and emotions, you know? Yeah. Uh, Which prevents people from being sociopaths. So you heard it here first from (laughs) your uh, fun children's librarian here. Uh, Make sure kids are reading. Make sure they're reading stories about people that are very different from them, people that are just like them. So that they cannot be sociopaths. Wow. That Okay, my uh, PSA is over. <laughs> Isn't that the ultimate goal of it? every parent is like, I just don't want to raise a sociopath. They can do whatever they want, but just like, don't be a sociopath. <laughs> the bar is very low. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and Bryony in this film is played by a young and extremely talented Saoirse Ronan. This is so interesting because this was her breakout role. Yeah. She was nominated for an Oscar for this. I know. For Best Supporting Actress, which I did not know at all. I mean, I can see it. She's so engaging and strong. And, like, she plays that 13 so well. She does. Like, you can see how young she is. Mm -hmm. But you can also see how bright and inquisitive and, like, interested she is. Good job with the casting, too. Because she was 12 when she filmed this role. I think just turning 13. And, like... Same thing with um, the character of Lola. Yeah. She also is, she's a little bit older, but she Mm -hmm. also still feels very young. She looks young. And I I think for this movie especially, like, actually casting actors of that age is, like, so crucial. Because, like. It is. Some serious things happen, and you want to be able to see, like, Bryony is really little when she does this thing. Yes. That's so awful. Yeah. And like Lola is really young when this horrible thing happens to her. Mm-hmm. For sh- Yeah. It, it, so I, I appreciate it. That was a really important thing, I think. And I think the casting like really nailed it. 
Um, what else is going? Oh, Bryony is writing a play. Yes, her oldest brother Leon is coming home mm-hmm. uh, to visit, and in celebration, Bryony is writing a play. She has transitioned from <laughs> uh, short story writing yeah. to playwriting, and I love all her thoughts about this in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, how she's like, actually, playwriting is the most concise form of storytelling. Like, there's no flowery language. Yeah, it's pure. But then later, she's pissed off because she's like, other people can fuck it up yeah she's like wait my vision is ruined and i think this is so funny i mean this book is so meta and this movie is so meta in so many ways just talking about writing um but it's so true because you know in some ways Bryony is like the play is better because i don't have to write all these descriptions like i can just do the dialogue and have some direction like set direction and things like that Mm -hmm. and stage direction But then she sees what can happen when you have people that don't execute your vision. Yes. You get other humans that interpret your material and you're like, wait, what the hell? Which is so (laughs) relevant to our podcast, which is all about adaptation and having other people take what you've done and then interpret it. And that might not be what you wanted it to be. Yeah, the, the, the novel or short story writing is kind of like, in a way, it's the most pure form of of storytelling in terms of like it's direct from one person and short of like an editor weighing in on it or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like it's from one person. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. a film or a play is like hugely collaborative. It you is. have so many voices and uh, perspectives you know, and talents weighing in on it. Definitely. Uh, yeah, there's just so much written in the book from Bryony's perspective that's like so interesting and fun to read. Yeah. Uh, but the actors in this play who are totally fucking it up <laughs> are her cousins who are coming from the north because their parents are getting a divorce. Yeah. And I guess like the kids are just coming to live with them for a bit. Well, their mom has fucked off with her lover in Paris. Yes. Which is not a good place to be at the time. Um, True. And the dad seems like he doesn't care about like taking care of the kids at mm-hmm. all. So they've come to live with their aunt, which is Bryony's mother. Um, And we have Lola, who's 15 at the time, and the twins who are like eight or nine, I think. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting because like the kids are like kind of obnoxious, but you also feel like real sympathy for them at different points. uh, Like no one's really taking care of the kids. Nobody cares about them at all. No, because like the dad is away. The mom is in bed with like a headache. Cecilia, like, it's not her job to take care of them, but she's still also not doing it. Yeah, and Bryony is just so obsessed with her her vision for the play that she's just annoyed at the twins and annoyed at Lola. And, you, yeah, you do feel bad for them. It feels like they're orphans, kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, and this is one of those things, too, where, like, they might seem annoying at first, but then the book will tr- change to their perspective. Mm-hmm. Or, like, the film will give us just a quick moment of them like on their own that kind of like humanizes them further Mm -hmm. uh so the so uh briny has roped them into starring in the play that she wrote yeah they're trying to rehearse it obviously it's going terrible (laughs) they only have like one day to rehearse before leon comes home (laughs) and uh the whole thing is just going to hell in a handbasket yeah during one of the rehearsals though briny ends up by herself in the nursery room And she looks out the window and she sees this scene play out below her. And in her mind, she views it as a scene, you know, kind of like a scene of a play or something that she would write about in a novel where she sees her sister Cecilia and Robbie, a family friend, 
uh, down by the fountain. And it's so incomprehensible to Bryony because she sees like some kind of like they're arguing or something. And then for no reason, Cecilia, her sister, like strips off most of her clothes besides her underwear, basically jumps in the fountain, comes back out and is really angry and like leaves. Yeah. Can you remind me, do we get Bryony's perspective or Cecilia's perspective on this event first in the book? Bryony's. Okay. I, I was thinking it was maybe the opposite, but. I couldn't remember. Um, But so, but the film, I think, you know, it, it puts Bryony's perspective first, which I think is so crucial. And I think the movie does a really good job of conveying, despite how kind of weird the scene is and not knowing what's going on, kind of like giving it this like undercurrent of danger yeah. or unease. Like I think the score in this moment is really good because and there's a moment where it seems like Robbie kind of yells at Cecilia. Yeah. Right before she goes in the fountain also, almost like he's making her do it. And that's what Bryony thinks. And that's what we get in the book is her being like, what power did he have to force her sister to like take off her clothes? Yeah. And like jump in the fountain without yeah. wanting to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we get this whole scene playing out from Bryony's perspective. Then we flash back. Mm-hmm. And we go to the oldest sister, Cecilia's perspective on this on this scene. Yeah. And uh, Cecilia has just come back from college and she's kind of in the we- a weird time in her life. She really doesn't know what she wants to do now. Yeah. She has some ideas of what her future could hold, but she's also like wanting to spend time with her family, but feeling like being with her family is not that great. I love in the book how it talks about she felt like a different person from when she lived with her family because she went to college. She lived on her own. She had this education. She had all this time with friends and like kind of discovering herself, which college is for a lot of people. And it yeah. was for me and for you. Um, but now she's back home and her family is treating her like she's the same person. Yeah. And she's falling back into these old family patterns and she doesn't like it. Yeah. And I think this is so relatable, even though, you know, this is in the 30s, like this idea of going back to your family and maybe falling back into the way you used to act when you were younger and not really knowing why and kind of not liking that part of yourself. Yeah, she's really and I I think, too, it really does a good job of pointing out like the challenges of just being a woman as well in this time because yeah. she could go to college, but she wasn't allowed to actually get her degree. Yeah, at Cambridge, they were like, oh, you can take classes and pay for it, but we're not going to give you a fucking degree. <laughs> I mean, we'll take your money. Like, don't think we won't, <laughs> but, like, you're not getting that slip of paper that actually, like, means something at the end of it. Yeah. So, like, you know, she's still kind of at a point where, you know, her options are limited and she still doesn't even know what she would want to do. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, kind of like feeling like she's falling back into this weird, like pigeonholed situation at, at home. Yeah. Cecilia also has a weird relationship with a guy who kind of works at her house. Yeah. He's the son of their maid. Maid. Yeah. And he kind of does like yard work for them. And mm-hmm. he's, he's roughly the same age. His name is Robbie. Mm-hmm. And, he actually went to school at Cambridge as well, paid for by Cecilia's father. Yeah. Uh, Cecilia's, because Robbie, 
his dad left when he was very young. He only has his mother. And so mm-hmm. the dad kind of took him under his wing to a degree or was willing. Sponsored him kind of. Yeah, was willing to pay for his education and stuff. And so Robbie and Cecilia attended Cambridge at like the exact same time. And they grew up together and were somewhat close in their childhood. But when they were at Cambridge, they never really talked to each other. And it was kind of awkward between mm-hmm. them. And now that awkwardness is back because they're both back from school for the summer. Yeah. And Cecilia doesn't really know how to act around him and their conversations are always really weird. And she finds herself really like pissed off all the time around him. (laughs) Yeah. And Robbie (laughs) seems to act weird as well. Kind of like maybe emphasizing their kind of class difference. Yeah. In kind of a way that makes her uncomfortable or angry. Mm -hmm. So the morning of the day of the... Of the incident, <laughs> of the multiple incidents. Yeah. Cecilia is filling a vase with water for flowers, mm-hmm. so she goes outside to do it at the fountain, and she passes Robbie. Yeah. And I like in the movie, she kind of seems to intentionally... Talk to him. ...go out to do this because Robbie's outside. Yeah. Which I feel like the book didn't... It kind of implied it, but it was a lot of language to give that point. Well, she so. kind of avoids him at first. Yeah. But I guess then maybe she changes her mind. I don't know. I think the movie just clearly made it obvious that she went to do this. Yeah, to pass him. Yeah, because, like, why is she going all the way outside to the fountain to fill up this pitcher of water? Yeah. Uh, But, you know, they kind of start a typical interaction between them talking as, Mm -hmm. as she goes to the fountain. They get in a brief, like disagreement where he's like here give me the vase and and, yeah like while you or give me the flowers they kind of fight over the vase briefly and it breaks yeah a piece falls into the fountain Mm -hmm. and this is like the beginning of the fountain scene yeah i think it's interesting that like robbie kind of laughs and i think the tension and the awkwardness is so palpable that he like just kind of does this thing intentionally, (laughs) but that kind of pisses Cecilia off even more. And so suddenly she's just like, well, I'm going to go fucking get it then. And she takes off her clothes, jumps in the fountain. And this is not like a shallow fountain. Like this is a deep fountain. Yes, Yeah. I appreciated the movie kind of showing it to us because it was really hard to picture just reading about it. I know. I was like, I don't get it. She's like jumping into the fountain. I know you think of a fountain as being like, I don't know, up to your shins with if like you pennies stood in, in it. it you yeah, know? but this is like a fucking like I don't know five foot deep. I know of for water. what reason. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's too deep. Are you fishing for koi in there? Anyway, she like fucking dives into this fountain, gets yes. the piece, comes back out, and she's like kind of trembling and shaking with her anger. And Robbie kind of like awkwardly turns away because she's like just totally naked. To- almost. Well, basically, well, she's I, wearing her underwear, but like it's but soaking so wet. wet, and yeah. it's just like formed to it's her. It's very nipply, you know. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, she kind of grabs the piece that he's holding in his hand, at least in the movie. And this is where we get like a, a hand flexing scene, which I think Joe Wright definitely carried over from his Pride and Prejudice movie. Well, Pride and Prejudice came after this. No, it was before. Pride and Prejudice came about before 20. Oh, that's right. No, you're right. You're Mm -hmm. right. Yes. Yeah. No, the the hand flex. (laughs) The hand flex. Joe Wright apparently loves his hand flex. And if you're interested in listening to our takes on the Pride and Prejudice movie, comparing it to the book. We do have an episode. I highly recommend listening to it. It, All I'll say is it made me kind of nervous to watch this movie. Yeah. After knowing he directed Pride and Prejudice, (laughs) but not to show my hand early. Uh, But and something else that I liked was um, in the and I think this is exclusive to the movie. 
there's a moment where C, Cecilia, I always write C in my yeah. notes because it's shorter, <laughs> but Cecilia, she almost steps on a piece of the broken pottery, yeah. and that's the moment that Robbie kind of yells at her to, like, stop because yeah. she almost, you know, puts her foot on it. And that's what was the yell that Bryony saw from the window. Yeah. I don't think that was in the book. I think that's it, movie exclusive. Yeah. But yeah. It, was, it was smart because it adds to that, like, sense of, like, him yelling at her or mm-hmm. commanding her to do something. Yeah. And for as much, like, subtlety and, like, nuance and kind of weirdness this scene has, like, mm-hmm. you know, Cecilia jumping in this water as a fuck you to get back at Robbie almost is, like, a weird thing to do. It is. But I think it conveys it pretty effectively because you can yeah. tell Robbie feels embarrassed and like won't look at her uh-huh. you know almost she's like you made me do this because you, you fucked up kind of yeah yeah I think it does a really good job at that I agree and you know Cecilia kind of goes back into the house dries off and then eventually her brother Leon arrives with a friend Paul Marshall and they kind of go out to the pool to hang out to have drinks you know very like uh, schmoozing upper class <laughs> thing. Yeah. But Paul Marshall is very annoying. And we know this immediately in the book and movie because he just starts talking endlessly. Can I just say, <laughs> this is my favorite role that has <laughs> cast Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Because, I mean, look, not to be mean, but ben- Benedict Cumberbatch has a kind of like... Creepy energy. Yeah, or a <laughs> face that you kind of want to dislike you know what i mean not that they haven't made him handsome in other movies or it hasn't worked but like his natural like (laughs) base level look is kind of like you want to punch him in the face a little bit no i agree with that so i think him casting him as paul marshall was so good i love that he's just like ranting about his (laughs) chocolate factory and we're like okay willy wonka (laughs) (laughs) there's a part that i loved so much in book and movie where he brags about making this really delicious cocktail that has, like, dark chocolate and banana and mint and, like, milk and something (laughs) else. And it sounds so disgusting. I know. And later he's like, here's my chalk tail. (laughs) And you're like, ew. (laughs) And I think in the book there's a part where it talked about they drank, they had, like, the cocktail. And it said something like, no one felt refreshed after the cocktail. (laughs) Because it's so hot that day. Oh, my gosh. Another part I loved about this scene is Cecilia is listening to Paul literally just monologue about his chocolate factory. Right. He's like, everybody in the army is going to have these chocolate bars. We're having distribution issues, blah, blah, blah. The Oompa Loompas are in place. They're (laughs) They're, ready to go. They're striking, you know. (laughs) Um, But Cecilia is like, oh, my God, this is so awful and so annoying. And she's like, oh, I remember when we were young, my brother and I, Leon and I, because we're really close in age and Bryony's like way younger. We would have all these really old and boring relatives who would visit for dinner. And we would give each other this look that was just like meant to like make us burst out into laughter, which we were not allowed to do at the dinner. So it became this like competition between them where they try to give each other the look to make the other person laugh first and get them like kicked out of dinner by their parents. And like the whole time that Paul is like monologuing about his chocolate 
Cecilia is trying to catch her brother's eye and be yes. like and make him laugh and the brother is like not looking at her intentionally. <laughs> yeah, he knows. He knows the look is coming. <laughs> and then finally she manages to get his attention and he looks over and she gives the look to him and he has to like turn away <laughs> yes, and like he's, stand like, up silently laughing. I just I love this part so much because I do think it captures that feeling of being siblings and having like an inside joke like that so well for sure yeah no it's it's, it's (laughs) such a good moment and like i'm so impressed with the writing of this book too because like it can explain something like this which takes like quite a bit like a whole page to explain this like inside joke and her looking at him and like it easily could just become like tedious to read yeah but it is there is actually like quite a bit of humor in this book i think Mm -hmm. and between the characters and their dynamics and like it is it is interesting to read i do have to say it is very funny though in the movie when cecilia just jumps into the pool with a cigarette. <laughs> oh, wait, I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, it's She's just so- lit. And she jumps into the pool with it. <laughs> also, she's in a god-awful ba- like bathing cap. Oh, my cap. God, the bathing cap is, <laughs> I'm sure, period accurate. Yes. <laughs> How could it <laughs> but, not be? But bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's just a good a good scene in general that I like a lot. Yeah. So we get a scene later, shortly after this, with Paul Marshall. Yeah. Uh, where the twins. So, um, Bryony has completely given up hope on the play. She's like, "Fuck this." She's abandoned the production. <laughs> She's gone a wall. <laughs> and so the twins or the cousins, you know, the two twins and the older uh, cousin, are just kind of hanging around in the playroom. Mm-hmm. And par- Paul Marshall shows up. Yeah. And reading this in the book first, I like you immediately just get like creepy vibes. Yeah, he's like, I just had a dream about my sisters and woke up hard. <laughs> okay. And I was like, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> That's true. It starts off with that before he even like enters the room of children. Yeah, he was like, ah, oh, my sisters. Ah, oh, I just want to fuck right now. <laughs> like, okay, so he's disgusting. Okay, so we should really be very suspicious of him. Yep. Uh, but he goes into this room where the, the, the twins, all the cousins are, and you're just like, okay, this grown man's just like saying hi to all these like little kids. And it's this kind of like interesting scene where he's talking to the kids and there's an interaction specifically with the older cousin, Mm -hmm. Lola, who's like 16, 15, 15. And you can tell like he kind of immediately is like drawn to her or noticing her yeah yeah and this is so interesting to me because when we watch the scene it kind of it was something specific and i i like the scene in the book but i really feel like the movie better captures the undercurrent of creepiness yeah that paul is showing towards lola because it's it's so hard to describe this i think and make it come across as somewhat benign, but also being really unsettling in another way. Yeah. Like, there's a moment specifically where he says something to the twins about their parents. Yeah. And Lola kind of stands up to him and she's like, I'd ask you not talk about her parents in that way in front of the children. Mm-hmm. And you can tell she's kind of like puffing Acting herself like she's up. she's older. Yeah. But like, Paul Marshall kind of like stops and looks at her and is like, in that moment, like... 
assessing her? Asse- yeah, like considering her or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I think the fascinating thing is that like the book is so in characters' heads and in their motivations. And like, it's not even like upfront about Paul Marshall's intentions in any no, way. No, But like, the, it's so in the details, right? However, the movie scene all the dialogue is like verbatim. I know. It's all pulled straight from the book. And yet the, all of the subtext of the scene is still there. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's better conveyed. I, I agree. I think in this scene in particular, like visually, you're getting so much more mm-hmm. from the scene than you could from the written page. Like for me, it like it really kind of hit me. And I think Benedict Cumberbatch did a great job being kind of creepy, but he played it in a subtle way. But, like, you just know that the scene is wrong when you're watching yeah. it. Well, it comes down to that issue of, in a book, how do you describe those moments of unease of unease and pausing without just flat out saying what's going on? Yeah. Or at least being, like, very obvious with, like, what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, like, not that you don't understand in the movie what's happening but like because you're like witnessing it firsthand you're almost questioning yourself you're like this yeah. is this is a little creepy right yeah like, is it just me or mm-hmm. you know so it's like not so explicit yeah but it's interesting though because this movie is a mixture of like scenes like this which are almost like pulled straight from the page of the book yeah but the movie does add other scenes like it gives us kind of an establishing scene between Cecilia and Bryony mm-hmm. kind of establishing their relationship. And As al- sisters. Yeah, and also Bryony asking, like, why don't you talk to Robbie anymore? Mm-hmm. And we also get a brief scene of Robbie and Bryony talking. And yes. So it is filling in the gaps that, like, the whereas the book just kind of tells us uh, in, in general, like, their relationships. Like, the movie does create scenes to kind of, like, fill in those gaps, too. That's a good point. Let's talk about... Robbie's letter to Cecilia, right? We go to Robbie's perspective now, and he has just come from this scene where Cecilia went into the fountain, and he's like, oh, damn. (laughs) I gotta... It's getting hot in here. I gotta think about some things. (laughs) I have to think about some things. (laughs) I have to masturbate. (laughs) Yes. I have to picture things for just a little bit, alone in my room. Um... Yeah, so Robbie is back at his house. And, and and by the way, also in the film, we just get like around this time, these brief little vignettes mm-hmm. of just kind of different characters in different environments. Like we get yeah. Robbie in the bathtub by himself looking at a plane. We mm-hmm. get the twins playing in their room by themselves. Cecilia putting on makeup in her room. Yeah, we just kind of get these like little moments of characters just on their own, which I really liked as well. Yeah. And Robbie is, you know, thinking about how he's really turned on by Cecilia. And he's like, damn, I would love to fuck her. In fact, I would love to kiss her cunt, her wet cunt. (laughs) (laughs) To put it elegantly. (laughs) And that's what he types in his letter to her. Yes, he does. He is 
drafting. Sweet wet cunt. Sweet Sorry. wet cunt. <laughs> I love in the movie, like you see him typing it out word by word on the typewriter. Yeah. And as he's writing, you're like, oh my God. I know. And then when like Bryony reads it later, it's like, C-U-N-T. <laughs> with, with each typewriter like type sound. sound. Yeah. There's definitely humor in the film as well. And like yeah. that moment like really cracked me up. Um, but yeah, he's like drafting what he wants to write on his typewriter first. And then he writes like a handwritten version. Yeah. And then he's like, la, la, la. I'm just going to grab a piece of paper (laughs) and put it in an envelope and not look at what I'm doing. I mean, the intention is to apologize to Cecilia, right? And even in his normal letter, he's kind of hinting at the fact that he says like, I'm lightheaded around you and it's not just the heat. He doesn't come out and say it, but he's like. But then he does. I mean, (laughs) in the regular version, he doesn't. it is still kind of a declaration of like I'm into you. Yeah. But he does give her the cunt version. (laughs) (laughs) The the cunt cut. (laughs) Robbie's cunt cut. Release the cunt cut. (laughs) The way he intended before the production companies got involved. (laughs) He is like, oh hey Bryony, you're over here just hanging out uh, whacking some plants. Do you want to bring this letter to your sister? And she's like, whatever. Runs away with the letter. And then he's like watching her and he's like, cool, cool, cool. <gasps> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow it's only in that moment that he's like, Wait. Could that possibly have been the typewritten version? The wrong letter. <laughs> so, and of course, because Bryony is already in this headspace of like, what's up going on with Robbie? What's what's up with Robbie? Like, I'm very suspicious of him. The moment she gets in the house, she opens up the letter, yeah, and reads it. <laughs> and that in the movies where we get the like the C U N T, which I love. It's so funny. It's so good. <laughs> um, and now Bryony's like suspicions are only being confirmed. Yeah, and she tells Lola about it. Mm-hmm. Um. And Lola is like, oh, that's, like, fucked up. Like, yeah. that's messed up. He's, like, a sex maniac. Like, you should actually call the police. Like, this mm-hmm. is wrong. Um, and Bryony's like, oh, I mean, I thought that it was weird. But, like, now that you're confirming it, I totally agree. Like, there's something wrong with him. And, you know, we also get the perspective that, like, Bryony has written this story. The play is called The Trials of Arabella. And there's, like, a villain in it, right? Yeah. And she's literally starting to think of Robbie in a villainous role. Yeah. Like, she's like, he's sneaky, he's treacherous, he's evil. Which is ironic, because in the book, after she witnesses the fountain scene, in her mind, she's like, I need to stop writing, like, a child with clear villains and heroes. And, like, there's so much nuance and misunderstanding and the unknown of human experience that I'm, like, not uh, accounting for. But then... She just quickly falls back into this, like, role of thinking of people as, like, villains or heroes or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, this is being cemented in her mind. She is going downstairs for dinner. Yeah. I think it's smart because in the film, she, like, sees, like, her sister's hair clip, follows it to the library where she witnesses Robbie pinning... Cecilia to the wall mm-hmm. and with his dick <laughs> with his dick <laughs> she doesn't know what's happening well that that's what I like too is that like yeah the way it's described in the book and the way you see it like 
she doesn't even say like they were having sex. Like no. she knows something is happening, mm-hmm. but she just doesn't have the words or the understanding to even like process it. She feels though that he is attacking her sister. Yeah. Yeah. That it's like a forced mm-hmm. action. And then her sister and Robbie just kind of leave and they don't talk to her or say anything to her. And she's really upset by what she's witnessed. And I also want to mention that Lola, before when she was talking to oh, her yeah. about this, she's like, well, what happened to your wrists, Lola? Like, why are they so bruised? And Lola's like, oh, my brothers, the twins, gave me like these Chinese burns. Yeah. On my hands. And there's like a scratch on her cheek too. And she's like, they attacked me. And Bryony's like, oh, that must suck to have brothers. Anyway, back to my stuff. <laughs> yeah, this like kind of weird moment. And mm-hmm. like the thing I liked too about that was in this book, you're constantly led to assume one thing, but then you're given a different perspective. Yeah. And so even though it seems weird that the twins would be violent like that, the book has constantly, like, changed our minds about people, so it still seems within the realm of possibility, right? Yeah. Um, let's go back to Cecilia's point of view about the library mm-hmm. incident, though. She gets the letter, and she's like, oh, okay, actually, this makes sense now. <laughs> she gets the letter, she reads the C-U-N-T part. Yep. And she's like, oh, I'm horny. Oh, my God. That's why I've been so pissed off. This whole time is I've been horny and I didn't know it. Um, But Robbie kind of comes up to her and is like, listen, the letter. I didn't want you to see that letter. (laughs) I love that he doesn't say it was like a mistake. He's just like, I didn't want you to see that draft of it. (laughs) And I think it's similar in the book, but I do just love in the movie how They kind of have this, like, moment of Cecilia being like, "Mm." hmm. And then she, like, walks away and Robbie just kind of, like, follows her. Yeah. And she just leads him into the library. Mm -hmm. And it's like, is this to talk or what's happening? But, like, clearly it's, like, this moment of them being like, okay, let's actually, like, connect over this. Yeah. And Cecilia's like, it's been between us this whole time, but I didn't know it. And you knew it before me. And then when I read your letter, I knew. And... They start to kiss and then they start to have sex and they tell each other that they love each other. It's hot. It's it's very sexy. <laughs> it's very um, good. The use of the book ladder in the scene in the movie is very, very, very creative. Very creative. <laughs> I know. She's like kind of bracing herself against it. She's mm-hmm. reaching up with it. Um, and then, of course, Bryony interrupts them. I do think the crucial mistake that they made in this part is not talking to Bryony about what happened. Absolutely. Like, Bryony, especially I think it comes across in the film version, she sounds really upset when she sees... Yeah, she's like in tears. ...what's happening to Cecilia. Like, she doesn't understand. Um, And for Cecilia to maybe just take Bryony aside and be like, listen, I love Robbie. Like, I was really into what we were doing. We were just kissing and holding each other. This is what adults do. I think that could have gone a long way towards... Helping Bryony understand what was going on. But then again, like, I think that conversation might have happened later under other circumstances. Like, I think in that moment they were just, like, annoyed and frustrated, Mm -hmm. which is, like, understandable. And to just, like, and to also, you know, not really consider the fact that 
Briny doesn't understand what's happening. Yeah, they're too wrapped up in their own stuff. Yeah, so, like, it's still very believable to me that they would just kind of, like, storm off. And, like, maybe later Cecilia would be like, I should talk to her about this. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of shit happens before then. <laughs> yes, they have a very awkward dinner scene where Briny is, like, staring daggers at Robbie. Yes. Uh, Paul noticeably has a scratch on his cheek. And, again, I think this is a, a part where... The movie does better because it can just show us, right? You can just see, like, a little scratch on his face. And you can be like, that's weird. And he's quickly, like, because it's mentioned about Lola's, like, uh, Attack by the twins. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul's immediately like, yes, yes, I had to, like, uh, pry the twins off of her. Yeah, and they they scratched me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But in the book, it's like, Robbie noticed there was a scratch on Paul's, like, cheek. And you're like, oh, my God, he raped Lola. Yep. You're like, that's it. (laughs) Like, that one line, like, oh, there was a scratch on his cheek. You're like, well, the game is up. I know what actually happened. (laughs) Like, sorry. Yeah. Again, I think the movie just does better in there just kind of being, like, this bit of evidence on top of the awkwardness of the scene that he had with her before. To the point of later on when they're suspecting Danny, whatever his name is, um, attacked Lola. I was like, are we supposed to actually believe that? I mean, there is one scene where Danny comes in. He wants to watch the play. And is that in the book, too? No, it's just in the movie. OK, no, but yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking more specifically of the book. I know. Because to me, it felt so obvious. I know. That it was Paul Marshall who attacked Lola. That like when later, much later, Cecilia and Robbie are talking about Danny. Mm-hmm. I'm like, am I actually supposed to buy this? No. Because like it, it's Paul, right? Yeah. It's everybody the creepy knows man it's Paul. who gets turned on by his sisters and like was talking to these and children. And makes chocolate martinis. <laughs> Exactly, and just gives chocolate to children. Not good. Um, Yes, so also just a quick shout out to uh, the dress that Cecilia is wearing. The green dress. It's great. And I've also heard that like it was like listed as like one of the best movie dresses of all time. If not like the best, (laughs) which I'm like. It's iconic. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. She looks good in it. She looks great. (laughs) Uh, The tense dinner is interrupted when it's discovered that the twins, because they're being completely neglected, have decided to run away (laughs) in the middle of the night. So they have to mount a search party for them. And Bryony goes off by herself looking for the twins. Of course, she is the one to find this horrible thing that has happened she has a flashlight or she is i don't know if she has a flashlight in the book i can't remember i think she does she's walking through like kind of the the grounds of this house and ends up seeing somebody and she just sees kind of a shape walk away and then she runs towards that shape and there's lola on the ground and lola has clearly been sexually assaulted and bryony In the story, and we see it in the movie, like, she has not seen who this is. No. Or at least from your perspective at this point of the story. Yeah. It doesn't seem like she actually got a good look at them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's done well because, like, she's asking Lola what happened, who was that. Yeah. And Lola is still, like, in shock and trying to collect herself. And before she can even, like, say anything or collect her thoughts... Bryony's like, it was Robbie, wasn't it? Yeah. And 
Lola seems like almost confused at first. Yeah, and she's like, I mean, I didn't, I didn't see him. I don't know who it was. Yeah. Kind of being like, I don't know. And then Briny being like, it had to be Robbie. Well, and this makes so much sense too, because like Lola, I'm sure assumed it was Paul Marshall. If considering Paul Marshall attacked her earlier in the day, that like, yeah, that's the man who like cornered me in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. But when Bryony is like, it was Robbie, Lola's like, was it? Yeah. And you know, she's like surprised, mm-hmm. but like Bryony is so insistent about yeah. like it was like I saw him that, you know, Lola's like, all right. I mean, if you saw him. Yeah. Like she knows what happened earlier in the day. But if what you're saying to me is like true, then mm-hmm. what what am I going to say, basically? Yeah. And it's really interesting because Bryony in interviews that she later gives with like the police and investigators and in court. She says, like, I saw him. And then she also says, I knew it was him. Yes. And I think the movie does a good job of kind of showing these two phrases and being like, well, nobody follows up on that. Why did you know it was him? Yeah. Well, and in in the film, too, she starts off by saying, like, I know it was him. And the officer's like, you know it or you saw it? And then she's like, no, I... I saw saw it. it. I saw it was him. Like, just to revise what she's saying. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, so well, it it demonstrates so well the blurred line of, like, prejudice and assumption and, like, what you actually think you witnessed or understood when you saw. Mm -hmm. And I think it also, this whole story just shows how fragile the truth is. Yeah. How quickly the truth can just be lost. And eyewitness testimonies being unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. And how how quickly something can be like deformed mm-hmm. or like become unrecognizable and just be kind of like you can't get it back. You know what I mean? Because once she like accuses Robbie. Yeah. Even if she like the next day was like, actually, no, it wasn't. I didn't know what I saw. She can't take that back. No, and, like, nobody would ever be able to, like, well, not nobody, but, like, I'm sure Robbie would always be kind of, like, thought of in a suspicious way. way. Yeah, And, I mean, they're unable to do DNA testing at this time. Yes. You know, um, they, nobody thinks to look further than Robbie, mm-hmm. you know? Nobody's like, well, who else was here? Yeah. Let's uh, look at maybe any scratches they might have on their face. Yeah. Or, like, where were they? Alibis, et cetera. Because um, nobody thinks further than Robbie. And I think class plays a part in this, too. Mm-hmm. Him being, like, the servant's son. Um and then, of course, Bryony grabs the letter that he sent to Cecilia and is like, this proves it, right? He's a maniac. And especially at this time, the idea of speaking about sex in an open and positive and healthy way is, like, not a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, you wrote out the C word. You're a sex maniac. You're in, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're like, a criminal You're already. a rapist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that, like, I think stories like this can be a little hard in, like, the present day. Yeah. To enjoy it face value because of, like, you know, oh, it's the story about a man who's falsely accused of, like, a sexual assault mm-hmm. and, like, you know, kind of that idea that, like... We're living through a time of reckoning where a lot of men are facing, like, consequences for the shitty things that they do. Yeah. 
But like so many other men push against it because they're like, well, what if I was like falsely accused? But like how small the actual wind like window possibility for that is. Yeah. And so when you, you know, hear a story like this, it can kind of be like. Your initial reaction is to like, "Mm, I'm not sure I want to read about a story that's like a falsely accused man. Yeah, but it is a story about. A girl who is assaulted, right? Yes. The reality of that is never questioned, Mm -hmm. which I think is key. Like, if this was a story about a girl who made up a story about being sexually assaulted, I think I would have a problem with it. That's fair. Because, like, that really doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it has, I'm sure. But, like, statistically, it's very rare. Um, But for this to have happened and then the blame be placed on somebody else and have issues of, like, class Mm -hmm. and then also like prejudice and like kind of interpersonal relationships kind of play a part in who gets blamed for it. I think that's really interesting and relevant. Absolutely. And speaking from like an even more present day example, like I think a more common example of this kind of thing happening would be like a person of color being accused for a crime like this over someone who's white. I mean, when we talked about the our episode on Just Mercy. Yeah. That was like almost that exact kind of situation mm-hmm. where it was like a black man is accused of this crime and basically no one questions it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like class and race and those elements like absolutely go into mm-hmm. uh, stories like this. You know what I mean? In terms of making them like believable. And so Definitely. like, even though like those elements in my brain at the time were like, uh, you know. Yeah. I think ultimately it handles it all very well. Yeah. Robbie is arrested and we have, you know, this scene where everything's kind of coming together, like the letters brought in, like Brian is giving her testimony. Robbie arrives. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting uh, scene. And then Robbie's arrested and uh, he and Cecilia kind of have this moment between them together before he's taken away. The music in this movie... And this is, I think, the best time to mention it, is so good. Yeah. Um, At the very beginning, we have this music. It's like Bryony's theme. Yeah. And it's like typewriter sounds, like, used as a percussion instrument almost. Yeah. To add this, like, really tense kind of, like, suspenseful music. Yes. And there's a scene right before the arrest where it keeps cutting between, like, Bryony's theme mm-hmm. and, like, other bits of, like, softer music when we see other characters. And then it goes back to Bryony. Like, looking for the letter, and you get yeah, that harsh typewriter sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you say this won or was nominated for Best Score? It won. It won, okay. Yeah. Well-deserved, I think. Definitely well-deserved. And I think, like, the energy that this gives this part of the movie is so strong. Yes. Like, honestly, I would say that this part of the book is the slowest for me. Mm. So I found, like, Robbie's part and then Bryony's part later – as kind of like more interesting for me. Yeah. At least more like fast paced in terms of my reading speed. This part, I kind of like, I don't know. It didn't always grab me. I thought the writing was always very interesting and good, but I would find myself kind of getting distracted and not being as engaged with it. How much How much are we talking about? Like the whole beginning or just The whole like, beginning. Oh, okay. Interesting. Like the whole first part, this whole part mm-hmm. up until we switch to Robbie. Yeah. Um, But I think this is actually the most compelling part in the movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think the different perspectives and like it's so complex and interesting, like all the different dynamics going on. I think the sound design has a huge part in that, though, like keeping that mm-hmm. energy up. Yeah, I totally agree. And like 
for Brian and too like thematically like Bryony is like writing a story in her head yeah. that puts Robbie as the villain mm-hmm. and so to have that like typewriter sound with like the music and everything that's going on is like yeah. really genius and it's like really well done definitely we get a very sharp transition here in mm-hmm. book and movie suddenly jumping to France in the middle of World War II. About four years later. Yeah. As um, the English soldiers are retreating out of France mm-hmm. towards Dunkirk. And we are now... It, I think it takes us a little while maybe to realize that we're following in the book Robbie. Yeah. Unless I forgot his name and I was just like... Because his last name's Turner and they keep calling him Turner. Yeah. But yeah, suddenly Robbie is in World War II... And it's 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 like a, it's such a sharp transition. And I have to say, I'm a little I wish the movie did it a little better. Yeah, because the movie transitions from Robbie being arrested to this very specific scene of them. Like we get the little title card that says like France mm-hmm. 19 whatever. And they're like hiding out in a barn. Yeah. And then some men show up who they think are like German. And there's like a standoff. And like it takes you a minute before you see, even see Robbie's face and know it's him. Yeah. I really think they could have stuck closer to the book and have made a better transition. Because mm-hmm. the book, the first scene that we're introduced to Robbie in World War II is he's looking at a leg in a tree yeah. near a bombed house. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think that's like a child's leg in that tree. It's just the the trying to accept what's he seeing. Yeah. Yes, this yeah. kind of, he, he's like in a daze basically. And I think you could have done such a good transition of like Robbie in the back of the police car. Yeah. Because I mean, he would have had to have been so like shocked and like what's even happening. Yeah. You could have just done like a shot of his face looking that way. And cut to, like, a matching image, mm-hmm. but now he's in a soldier's uniform looking down. And then yeah. cut to, like, he's looking at a leg or something. Mm-hmm. And had that, made that the transition that yeah. pulls us into, like, this new time period. I don't, maybe that, maybe I'm being too specific with my <laughs> criticism and I'm rewriting it in my head. But, like, I just think that could have been, like, done much more effectively. I agree. And we know that he and two other soldiers have kind of all been separated from their units and they're making their way to Dunkirk Beach where they're going to be evacuated from France to go back to England. And this is kind of in the worst part of the war for England Mm -hmm. where they're losing pretty badly. You know, the English troops are fleeing France. We're about to begin the bombing of England by the Germans. So it's kind of a desperate time and Robbie is in the thick of it, and he has also been injured. Yes, he has a... In the book, it's like a shrapnel wound to yeah. his side. In the book, it looks like he was shot in the... Or in the movie, it looks like he was shot in the chest. Yeah. Like, there's just this open wound that he's just, like, poking. Poking? <laughs> it's disgusting. I kind of wish they drew more attention to this wound Yeah. in the film, because, like, except for this one moment, I don't think we see it again. No. Or are reminded of it. So as he begins, like, his decline into, like, feverish illness, mm-hmm. I think it could be easy to forget what might have caused Why that. Why like that? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is, like, four years later, and we get kind of explanation from Robbie in flashbacks in the movie uh, about him and Cecilia. And we find out that Cecilia went on to become a nurse and that she completely cut off her family because they all 
just kind of supported this idea that Robbie was guilty and she knew that he wasn't and nobody would believe her or believe Robbie. And so she doesn't see her family anymore, but she still believes in Robbie. She writes to him and they want to be together. It's so sad. <laughs> they only got one moment in the library and in the book, we know at least that Robbie came when they had sex, but like in the movie, did he? Did they? Nobody knows. I don't know. I don't even know if you could say he did in the book. Like I thought it was inconclusive. Oh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Inconclusive evidence. They were having sex, but I don't know if either of them came. Like, I don't know if it was a good experience. Because this falls into our did they bang? I know. Qualification, but like even more specific, did they come? I know, Ian. (laughs) This is so real. Um, And like, they have this experience where they're able to meet each other and Robbie is offered kind of a get out of jail free card if he joins the military and so he does and they have this scene where they're at a coffee shop together and they get to talk but they don't get much time and it's a little awkward but they get this this kiss this embrace that they get at the end Mm. where they have to you know depart and it kind of solidifies everything that they've both been writing to each other about they're like okay this is real we have this connection And they keep talking about how they want to go to this cottage, Ian. They just want to go to this cottage and fuck to their heart's content, right? But he, his, like, holiday leave is canceled because he has to ship out to France. And then, you know, Cecilia can't get time off because she's a war nurse. It's like this whole thing. They can't be together. It's... It's devastating. And I have to give a shout out at this point to James McAvoy. I do too. As Robbie. I think the scene in the coffee shop. Yeah. When he's kind of like, I think he feels bad and guilty that like Cecilia has been like waiting for him to get out of prison. And now he's like out, but he's going to war. Yeah. And he's like, we only shared one moment together, like in a library. I don't want you to feel committed. Yeah. And he's like breaking up into tears at, at, at this coffee shop. It's just, he gives such a great and vulnerable performance. I agree. Uh, really good baby James McAvoy. I know. And this was one of his breakout roles. It was. Too. I mean, yeah. he was in stuff before this, but this, I think, really solidified his reputation. Yeah, before he was in, like, much larger like roles. Like X-Men. I guess, um... Narnia. He was in. He was in Narnia. Chronic- he was Mr. This. Tumnus. I know. For anyone who didn't know, <laughs> Mr. Tumnus in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's James McAvoy, baby. Yes. <laughs> A baby James. McAvoy. A baby James McAvoy. <laughs> but this begins the part where he's in the war, and I like this setup of like he just got like separated from his unit. unit. Is that where they're you yes, yeah. yeah. Uh and him and two other men are just making their way across France trying to get to Dunkirk mm-hmm. where they're gonna be picked up. And if you've seen the movie Dunkirk, you know it's probably not a great place. <laughs> yeah, and so they're going there, and the book makes this a really long journey. Like, you know, Robbie is injured. They're just having to walk like 25 miles on foot. In the book, they're constantly getting bombed by uh, like German planes that are going overhead and like blowing people up. There's an awful scene where Robbie's trying to help this woman and son get away from the bombs, but they refuse to follow him and they just get blown up. Yeah. Um, The movie dwells less on this, but I think it does shine in the part when they actually get to the beaches of Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. We get this like really spectacular long take scene of them walking the beaches of Dunkirk. 
and you just see the complete just breakdown breakdown of like any form of like orders or like following any kind of like regiment is just these men are just kind of fucking around doing what they want there's they're just, on the beach there are no ships to t- to evacuate them. yeah they're and, waiting and there's just kind of this air of hopelessness around them mm-hmm. and i think the movie effectively captures what i think the book also did well which is just conveying this i don't know this what feels like a very realistic sense of absurdity and horror tied to war yeah like as they're heading for dunkirk like they're passing um like just all these soldiers like breaking their shit because they don't want the germans to have it when they leave they're destroying all this equipment they're shooting horses yes yeah They, they pass in the book a general who's just on the side of the road pulling men out of line and he's like all right men there's like a nest a sniper's nest or like a machine gun nest in those woods we're gonna go like attack it and these men are like what the no no why we're retreating and he's like we're not gonna like we're gonna be brave and show them what we're made of like before the like it's just like this man who's just completely lost the plot Mm -hmm. and is just like totally insane and yeah. is like willing to just send men to their deaths for no reason. I like in the movie, like there are these men that are singing together. That are there are men who are just drinking and stumbling around on the beach. There's people that are fighting. They're just in a fist fight. Like it's just pure chaos. Like some of them are on a merry-go-round. Like they're just <laughs> yes. And there's no not enough food. There's no water. It's just really desperate. I yeah. Think. Yeah, I think the movie, to all its credit, I think captures, like, the essence. Even though the book, I think, gets into, like, more of the interesting details. Yeah. And, like, different examples of how this is happening. I think the movie captures this vibe so well with this Mm -hmm. really long take. Yes. On the beach of them just kind of stumbling around. Because, like, they're just aimless. They're just wandering. They've gotten to Dunkirk. Yeah. They're waiting to be rescued, but there's no boats. And, like, what do you do? And they're just kind of, like. There's no food. There's no water wandering around like children with like nothing to do robbie goes on a pig side quest in the book (laughs) (laughs) it is like a video game side quest like an old woman's like oh i'll give you food and water but you have to catch my pig first and robbie's like all right i'm gonna catch this fucking pig and his soldier friend uh sergeant nettle or major nettle or somebody was like no we're not gonna catch this pig and robbie's like listen If we catch the pig, then the woman will make sure that we have good fortune. And if I catch the pig, then I'll be able to go home and then I can be with Cecilia and then I can live my life. It's part of the quest. (laughs) We have to get the pig. And Nettle is like, are you feeling okay? You look really sweaty. Yeah. And he's like, I'm fine. I I definitely, I definitely don't have a shrapnel wound that I haven't told you or anyone else about. They get the pig and the woman does give them food and water. So like, in a way, he is right. Yeah. In the movie, it's just he thinks he sees his mom, mm-hmm. goes into some woman's house. She takes his boots and gives him food and wine in return. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, he's clearly, like, not doing well at this point. He yeah. and Nettle find, like, kind of an underground basement bunker area to, like, settle for the night. Yeah. Robbie is... Lighting matches and looking at the photo, the postcard of the, the cottage the cottage she wants to go to. We get 
what might be the one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole movie, if not the most, where he kind of has this dream mm-hmm. and it's so much of what's happened in the movie already, but it's playing in reverse. Mm-hmm. And like him being carried off by the police. Yeah. But like in reverse and like the camera now coming towards Cecilia instead of away from her and like kind of almost undoing the circumstances that tore them apart. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that he's dying, the idea that he's like living through going back his memories, like is so like appropriate and Mm -hmm. works so well in this moment, I think. Yeah. It's done really, really well. It's very sad. And we're like, yeah, he's a, he's a goner. (laughs) Yeah. And then let's go to a new perspective. Let's just cut away. (laughs) I'm sure Robbie's fine. He's, he's good. Uh, anyway, Bryony is older now. She's 18. Mm -hmm. She has decided to become a nurse like her sister. And I think she, she's doing this for a couple reasons, right? She's doing this, one, I think, because she wants to follow in her sister's footsteps. Oh, yeah. She's doing this, two, because uh, they're in the middle of a war and she wants to be useful. And she's doing this, three, and probably most importantly, because she feels like she messed up when she was younger. And if she does this, it's like she's able to somehow make up and atone, atonement, for her past. Yes. And... I think she's pretty upfront about that aspect of it in book yeah. and movie. In fact, I really love there's just it's one shot, but it, it's a scene where she is scrubbing her hands. Yeah. And it seems like such an over the head metaphor, but like it's so accurate to like, OK, she's a nurse in World War Two. Yeah, she's going to be scrubbing the shit out of her hands constantly. Mm-hmm. So like it's very appropriate, but obviously like literally scrubbing her hands of or metaphorically scrubbing them of the deeds she did in her past. Yeah. Because she knows that she fucked up about accusing Robbie. Yeah. And we don't really know exactly what she thinks about what happened other than the fact that she, she doesn't think Robbie is guilty anymore. Yeah. And I think she realizes that all the evidence she had built in her mind against Robbie, as she gets older, she's understood that that was something between him and Cecilia that she was totally misinterpreting. And I think she also knows because Cecilia has like cut her off. Yeah. That this is something real between them and that they're she really like messed up their relationship and separated them. And she also knows that Robbie is fighting in the war now. Yes. And these parts of Bryony going through her training mm-hmm. and just going through like the nursing program. I forget, there's like a specific kind of nurse that she is or I couldn't tell you I I, I forget <laughs> it. it seems like different like not like through a religious group or something but they're like very strict and rigid about like what they can and can't do mm-hmm. like the cleanliness of things like being on time yeah it really feels like Bryony is going through her own form of basic training. It's yes. almost like soldiers um, in like when they go to sleep, like when they go to bed, what they're allowed to be called, like their names even yeah. being stripped from them, their identity kind of being stripped from them, but this discipline being so strong. Um, but Bryony realizes later when suddenly a ton of wounded soldiers arrive from France she realizes what the point of all of this really highly disciplined and very strict training was because it was to prepare her for the just atrocities and the overwhelming horror 
of what it's like to be wounded in war and to have to care for those people wounded in war. The part of the book, because <laughs> it kind of like happens at, all at once when yeah. suddenly the first uh, boatload of people, I think specifically being shipped from Dunkirk, yeah. arrives to the hospitals. This part of the book was just really relentless. Yeah. And pretty hard to read because it was just a lot of description and detail about men mutilated from war. Yeah. Men with their faces half blown off. Men with like. Burns all over their body. Yes. From oil and like shrapnel in their legs and like her trying to help them and them screaming in agony. And then dying. And dying. And like I was. At this point in the book, just listening to it on audiobook, mm-hmm. I'm sitting there listening. <laughs> I'm just trying to eat my lunch. <laughs> and I have to hear about his half exposed skull and inability to talk because his tongue got blown off. And I'm just like, <sighs> You're like putting down your sandwich. <laughs> You're like, no. Exactly. <laughs> I think it was maybe a little better to read, but yeah, it wasn't easy. To get through this part, I think the movie is sensible in that it just does like a wounded montage. Yeah. You know, it's like wounded, wounded, nurse crying, wounded, wounded. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does a good balancing act of like a lot of it's just vague men kind of looking dirty and bloodied and screaming, like nothing too specific. But then there are moments like some visuals that are like more specific and gruesome. Yeah. That like feel a little bit more... Not authentic, but a little bit more... Specific and believable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We get the tragic scene with young Luke, a French soldier who is brought into the hospital, and Bryony is told to go sit with him because she can speak French. And he seems pretty normal, but kind of delirious when she first starts talking to him. He's like, hey, what's up? My friend, uh, we knew each other when we were younger. Remember coming to my bakery in France? And she's like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, can you loosen the bandages on my head? They're like really tight. And she's like, sure, no big deal. And I'm like, don't loosen the bandages. Because, <laughs> of course, she takes them off. And like, oh, there's just a big hole in his head where you can see his brain. I love in the movie, just like a piece of his skull falls off. And she like casually like puts the... Oh my god, does back it? Off. Yeah. Oh my god, I thought it, it just falls off. <laughs> I didn't see that. I must have been writing a note. It was very disgusting. Oh god. <laughs> um Yeah, it's it's very sad. I did thematically like this moment though, because like you have this man who's like inventing stories. Yeah. In his like state of injury mm-hmm. and, and like dying essentially like inventing stories about like i knew you how's your sister like did she marry the man and like and the fact that like this whole ordeal began with briny and her innocence inventing stories in her own head Mm -hmm. and i kind of thought that was an interesting parallel and also briny kind of going along with him to be kind to him in the end Mm -hmm. you know he's like do you love me and she said yes You know, and giving this young boy the comfort that he needs because he dies like right there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and she's like, I'm here. I'm with you. It's very upsetting. And it's upsetting for Bryony. It's upsetting for me. Yeah. We're all upset. (laughs) (laughs) We're all effectively upset. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a tough read at this point, honestly. Like even the stuff that was actually set in World War II with like following Robbie 
was not nearly as bad as this for me. Definitely. She is still writing, though, and she submitted a story to, like, a publishing company um, called Two Figures at a Fountain. And we see that she's still obsessed with this scene that she witnessed between Robbie and Cecilia, right? Like, the root of everything is this scene that she does not understand. Well, and it makes sense because, like, you know, in hindsight, as an adult, she can probably look back at that letter and at least be like, okay, this doesn't necessarily mean he was like malicious like this yeah. could have just been like a love letter but i'm sure she still thinks back to that fountain and, and is she's like, like what the hell happened what here? happened like i still don't understand yeah like yeah. i'm 18 now but i still don't get it it is so bizarre though and like she gets a rejection from the publishing company and in the book they send her kind of like the rejection but they're like it's good writing but like they kind of give a little bit of a critique and analysis on what she's written, which is so meta. Yeah. You know, like this book within a book and like offering criticism on a writing that's within this larger story. But just kind of telling Bryony that like her characters are half formed, like she needs to have more motivation. She also needs to have more of a driving force and narrative in her story. She's so obsessed with like the interior thoughts of the characters and not enough with like the plot. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. And you're like, is this commenting at all on like what's actually written, what I've already read or? It is very interesting. It's kind of a deep meta dive into this whole book, basically. Yeah. Should we talk about the actress who plays this older Bryony? Yeah. She's fine. She's okay. Yeah. She, you know, I wouldn't say she looks like Sir Ronan does now. No. However... There is a moment where they flash back to young Saoirse Ronan in a scene Mm -hmm. and looking at her and the adult actress, I'm like, they do look enough alike. It's a very like uh, mole and haircut specific (laughs) recreation. (laughs) They're like, put the mole under her eye and have the same haircut. That's all we need. Yes. I mean, I think she does kind of embody her mannerisms in a lot of ways. She's kind of... You know, young Bryony, played by Sir Ronan, was in ways kind of reserved. Yeah. But there always seemed to be something kind of going on in on the inside. Yeah. Like some kind of like mental thought process and kind of like. Yeah. Vitality. S- yeah. Whereas like adult Bryony just seems kind of dull. She does seem kind of empty. I don't get that same feeling of like there's something going on under the surface. Yeah, the performance is not as inspired. And I think it is tough because she's trying to mimic another performance. So that's always going to be harder. Well, I don't even know if that's true, though, because I'm sure they kind of like work on this together to a degree, like her and Saoirse Ronan. I mean, I read that she kind of studied Saoirse Ronan's mannerisms really okay something i read implied maybe more collaborative but it could be i could be wrong on that i'm not sure Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's just not it's not totally there for me yeah there's something missing from it i agree let's go to a wedding briny hears news uh depending on the version it's a little bit different of a wedding between lola and paul marshall and she goes to the wedding and she was not invited. She just just kind of sits in the back. And I like how in the book she kind of imagines standing up and, like, protesting. <laughs> yeah. Which, 
I think having this like fake scene that doesn't really happen helps another scene later on. That also doesn't really happen. Yes. That's imagined. Yeah. Yeah. There is a part though I really want to read, and I think the writing's very good here. So um this is Bryony thinking, and she's watching this marriage take place. She felt the memories, the needling details like a rash, like dirt on her skin. Lola coming to her room in tears, her chafed and bruised wrists, and the scratches on Lola's shoulder and down Marshall's face. Lola's silence in the darkness at the lakeside, as she let her earnest, ridiculous, oh-so-prim younger cousin, who couldn't tell real life from the stories in her head, deliver the attacker into safety. Poor vain and vulnerable Lola, with the pearl-studded choker and the rosewater scent, who longed to throw off the last restraints of childhood, who saved herself from humiliation by falling in love or persuading herself she had, and who could not believe her luck when Bryony insisted on doing the talking and blaming, and what luck that was for Lola, barely more than a child, prized open and taken to marry her rapist. Yeah. I love that part so much because I think it's at once blaming Lola, but at the same time absolving her as being a child. Yeah. You know, Lola, vulnerable Lola, who knew what was happening, right? Yeah. Knew who had raped her, but didn't want to believe that it had happened to her. And her being at an age where she no longer wanted to be thought of as a child and wanted to be an adult and, like, maybe misconstruing that with, like... Love. Love or, like, even consent Mm -hmm. or being, like, this is the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really sad. And I think the scene where they're they're doing like the marriage ceremony and like the reading of like the ceremonial marriage service juxtaposed with what we know of this relationship is so stark and so interesting and you know that's this idea of like the sanctity of marriage but like this awful thing and this poor child who was taken advantage of and who is still suffering now in an abusive relationship with this guy yeah you know there's something about writing like this that I'll describe as flowery, for lack of a better term. I don't mean that negatively, but it's like very writerly or I'm not quite sure how to describe it. You know what I mean? But where a younger me might have been very dismissive of it and been Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is so self-important and pompous and like just explain what you want to like stop using all this like verbiage or language. But like I do think writing of that style is sometimes able to convey really complex ideas and emotions Mm -hmm. in an elegant and insightful way that like if I was just to sit here and try to like explain what that passage says like it just comes across sounding like clumsy or like the ideas aren't connected or anything but like a passage that's written so well like that mm-hmm. is able to convey so much. Yeah. And when it's done well, I just have such an appreciation for authors who are able to write in that style so effectively. I agree. And Bryony watches watches this marriage take place. Lola kind of sees Bryony there, but there's no confrontation between them. And then Bryony, after this, decides to visit her sister Cecilia. Yes. She shows up at her doorstep. And things are awkward at at first. Mm -hmm. Um, Cecilia wasn't expecting her and is kind of pissed about that. Things are tense and uncomfortable. They, like, 
I, I like in the book too, Bryony explains how like she wanted to avoid the heavy topics of their past and yeah. like everything with Robbie, but like what else was there to talk about between them? Yeah, and Bryony wants to change her testimony. She wants to make things right. And she's surprised when she sees Robbie there. Yeah. And she figures out and Cecilia tells her that he's come back from Dunkirk. He's been on a brief leave. They've been together, possibly at the cottage for a few days. And now he has to go back to to duty. I don't love the way this reveal was handled in the movie. Yeah. I thought the cutting or editing of like when Robbie suddenly walks in, because like that's a shocking moment Mm -hmm. when he shows up because he was like, he looked fucking dead back at Dunkirk. I know. And so for him to just walk in the room and I get like Briny is surprised by him and doesn't want to look at him. So the camera kind of like imitates that like cut away from him or that like. Yeah. But on the other hand, it felt weird and jarring and like, whoa, what? Yeah. But not in a great way. Um, He's understandably angry at Briony once he notices who she is and, yeah. and recognizes her. And there's this scene where he almost it's like he's going to attack her and Cecilia kind of calms him down. And we're I think we're meant to believe that this is a like a PTSD yeah. experience where he's not only angry at Briony in this moment, he's reliving a lot of other experiences. And Cecilia, you know, is there to call him back. And she uses language that she's used in the letters that she wrote to him, in the words that she spoke to him before he was arrested, where she says, come back to me. Yeah. It's a very sweet and touching moment between them. And it's yeah. just like nice to see that even though they're not living in like the greatest conditions or like they have like the best lives still, it's still like nice to see them together. Yeah. Once Robbie is calmed down though, he's able to sit down with Bryony and he's able to kind of like put his thoughts together and is like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Yeah. You need to, cause like at this point they don't think there's any way of legally changing the outcome of like his guilty verdict yeah but he's like here's what you're gonna do you're gonna get like a state you're gonna give a statement Mm -hmm. uh and get it signed and like authenticated you're gonna talk to your parents you're gonna say whatever you need to convince them that you were wrong then and that you're right now yeah i want you to write me a letter that's like very explicit about like everything that did happen back then that you know or don't know and then this is the moment where they're still under the impression that danny hardman was involved in this crime. And this is where Bryony is like, no, it was Paul. I just came from their wedding. And we also get a great flashback scene where Bryony is back in that moment where she sees the man with Lola. And we get a shot of Paul. Yes. I like this a lot. Yeah. Well, that was at the wedding, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because yeah. it, it's the, the voiceover of her saying, I know it was him. I saw him. Yeah. And intercut with like what she actually did see, which was Paul mm-hmm. like crouching over Lola. And I thought that was like a really effective way to just visually clarify yeah. what, what she happened. actually experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all kind of like shocking news, but they decide to kind of like Bryony agrees to everything that Robbie is asking of her. Mm-hmm. She leaves the apartment and then we get a flash forward. Yeah. We get old Bryony. Old Bryony. Old Bryony. <laughs> uh, the book and movie take different tactics here. In the book, it's just old Bryony kind of going about her life as like a 70-something, 80-something-year-old woman. Yeah. And kind Hasn't of- Hasn't changed her hair. 
<laughs> in the movie, her hair is the same. Listen, <laughs> we can know it's the same person and the hair can be different. Can we, though? We can, Ian. I have faith in this. I have faith that we would know, especially because they just say her name in the interview. The movie has her being interviewed, and we figure out that, like, she is a novelist. She's written several novels. She's sort of well-known at this point in her life. But now she's old, and she's actually dying. Yes. In this interview, yeah, she says she has um, some type of dementia. Vascular dementia. Vascular dementia. Thank you. And that, like, her she her time is limited now. Mm-hmm. And so this last book that she's written, which is – she says it was, like, also the first book she began writing, and it's autobiographical. Obviously, it is based on two figures at a fountain. Yeah. The story of Robbie and Cecilia. And in the book, it's, it's more just, like, we kind of just get a, a picture of what her life is at this point. And mm-hmm. she's going back to – her family's home for a family reunion. Yeah, and we see some of the characters again. A lot of people are dead now, um, but we're kind of checking back in with the family a little bit. And the movie doesn't do this, but it does have the interview where she's talking about the book. And we find out that she is kind of telling the truth about what happened. And at least in the book, she talks about the fact that, like, she's specifically accusing Lola and Paul of covering up this thing that Paul did. And they're, like, actual people. And in the book, she can't publish it until they're both dead. But she realizes that she's going to die before Lola probably dies. Yeah. So the book that she's writing, she won't even see published in her own lifetime, which is interesting. Which I'm like... Is that something specific with the UK? Like, you can publish a book that accuses someone of something. I know. I don't you? know about the rules for that. Yeah, I thought that was, like, a little odd. Like, I, I don't know what the line is with that. But mm-hmm. um, it's also funny because in this family reunion, uh, like, her great-grand-nephews or nieces, whoever, put on a performance of the play she wrote <laughs> when she was 13 that her cousins never got to do. yeah. Uh, So that was kind of interesting. Yes. But it is revealed that Bryony rewrote history a little bit in the ending of this book. That she couldn't stand to end it how it really ended. And she needed to fictionalize at least some of it because it was too depressing. Yes. Because in reality, Robbie did die on the beach on at dunkirk of um sepsis of sepsis like his infected wound and not only that but cecilia died of a bombing in london Mm -hmm. where she was hiding in one of the tubes they got flooded from one of the bombs yeah and she was killed as well Mm -hmm. and they never did get to have a reunion the entire scene where she went to cecilia's house and saw Robbie and talked to them. That was all made up. Yeah. All fiction. Yeah. It's pretty sad, right? And I think this is interesting because Bryony is saying this whole thing that you've read is what I've written, right? So it's super meta, yeah. you know? But it's this idea, too, that, like, everything is fiction, right? Is there any real nonfiction, even if you're writing your own memoirs, like how real can you ever be? Yeah. I feel like it's sort of a commentary on truth and on writing itself and how everything is kind of a lie. Yeah. I mean, she was saying by the time this 
book is published well after I'm dead. Yeah. Like, and a long time after Robbie and Cecilia are dead, this is going to be the version that most people are familiar with. And most people will walk away thinking that Robbie and Cecilia got to live a life together. Mm -hmm. And that, like, her power as an author... Like, that was her greatest form of atonement or what she was most capable of. And the only way she could atone with them being dead. Yes, was giving them some kind of ending and some kind of future like that, even though it was fiction. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a really interesting ending. Yeah. My only thing is, and this is specifically with the book, is like, I kind of I kind of look back and because like, is what we've read up until this point supposed to be her book? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because on one hand, she talks about like, oh, I I talked to um, the Nettle, Nettle, the soldier who he traveled with. And it's like, okay, but like, like, I guess there's obviously a lot of embellishment with what Robbie was thinking and experiencing. Yeah. Okay. But then you also think, well, okay, but there's also parts of the mother's perspective at the home and like what she was going through and thinking or the scene when... Paul Marshall talks to Lola when I know. the twins and I mean, maybe the twin, one of the twins could have told her what happened. Maybe it is like interesting. Like, is this the book or is this her book? Yeah. You know, because she was very adamant that like I was very accurate. I was very, you know, I, I I went to great lengths to like make sure this is as accurate of an account as of the truth as I could have, you know, come up with. Yeah. But I'm like, but you're also I mean. Writing from people's perspectives that like dead. who are dead, like I'm sure your mom didn't tell you like, oh yeah, that day when I had a migraine, I laid in bed and I thought about all these specific things. I think that's kind of the point, though. You know, this idea about like what is the truth and what is embellished and what do writers do. So I think it works. I'm I'm a little more mixed on it with the book. Yeah, like I think just I think that line of being like. What you've read is the book that she wrote specifically. Yeah. Like, I think it could have been a little more vague as if, like, wait, is what we just read the book? I mean, I couldn't say for sure. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not 100% sure on that. I mean, that was my impression. That was my impression, Reading too. that, like, what we've read is the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the movie, like, obviously you didn't just read a book. So there's, like, yeah. more vagueness and ambiguity about it. So, mm-hmm. like, it maybe works, like, a little better for me, but... All right. I mean, we're here. Let's we've, get into it. We've arrived. It. Which is Adina, better? Adina, which is better? No, you go. You go. No, you go. You go. <laughs> I don't know, Ian. I don't either, uh, okay? This is really tough, actually. This um, is interesting because this movie is very faithful. It's super faithful. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Go. You go. I think I know I'm going to start talking. Okay. I think I know where I'm going. Note me in. I may change. <laughs> I may zig when I thought I was going to zag. Uh... <laughs> I really liked this book overall. I thought it was really well written. I thought it gave a lot of interesting perspectives into the characters. I thought it felt like one of those books that like there's so much detail that feels like period accurate. Yeah. That like it just really pulls you into that time and space, especially like the Dunkirk stuff was mm-hmm. so well done. Um you know, there's a lot of interesting themes about truth and fiction and writing. And um, I really, really did enjoy this book. And I would highly recommend it to anyone. That being said, I think the movie manages to convey basically everything 
that the book managed to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? The movie, I think, is as successful on all those fronts as the book was. And I think it gets some additional points for style. Yeah. There's so much great stuff going on with the cinematography and the music and the performances and like maybe selling you a little bit more on certain parts. There's some slight tweaks and changes that I think are maybe even a little better. Like I love the fact that when Bryony abandons the play at the beginning, Mm -hmm. she immediately begins writing this new story about Robbie. Yeah. That is putting you in her headspace of her seeing Robbie as a villain. Mm -hmm. Like there's just a lot of really smart and great story changes. And it was very touching. So I actually think I'm going to go with the movie on this one. You know, I think I was also leaning towards movie. But the fact that you said that makes me (laughs) even more certain. Don't hold me accountable. No, no. I I think what you said makes so much sense in that it really does accomplish everything the book does, I think. Yeah. Its goals, its intentions, the vibes. And also, the movie just has a really strong energy that I really liked. I do think that energy kind of, it loses a little bit of it. Once we switch to like Robbie in the war, like the whole beginning part has just such a dynamic presence to it. Like, yes, with the the score and the soundtrack and the performances and the cuts, like it's just so engaging and it does kind of wane a little bit at the end, but not enough to make it not as good, I think. Yeah. If that makes sense. (laughs) So I I agree. I think I will say the movie. I think you could watch this movie and really get what the book's about. Um, And the book is good too. But yeah, I really think the movie is done very well. And I'm very surprised because I was not a fan of Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. But I think this is a really good use of this director's talents. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to be honest and say part of my factoring in of this is like, how likely am I to reread this book versus rewatch this movie? Yeah. I really want to rewatch this movie, honestly. Like, I mean, it's pretty sad. I might not watch it for a while, so. You know, it's sad, but there's something about it that's like, I don't know if I want to say it's like sweet. Yeah. Or touching or I'm not sure. Like, I don't feel like devastated by it to the point of like, I'll never watch this again. (laughs) No, I agree. There's some kind of lingering hopefulness about it or like sincerity that I really like. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though the book is great, it's a, it's a big undertaking. It's a large book. It is. And like, yeah, there's a lot of details in there that obviously the movie can't touch on, but ultimately are they worth that amount of time and story that you're absorbing? So yeah. All right, it's a movie from both of us. It's movie. Let's do a lightning round. Let's do lightning. So first up for lightning round, there's a part where Bryony is nursing, right? And she has to help this man with some shrapnel that's in his leg and pull it out. (laughs) And she's pulling it out. And all of a sudden he says, fuck. The escaped word ricocheted around the ward and seemed to repeat itself several times. There was silence or at least a lowering of sound beyond the screens. Bryony still had held the bloody metal fragment between her forceps. It was three quarters of an inch long and narrowed to a point. Purposeful steps were approaching. She dropped the shrapnel into the kidney bowl as Sister Drummond whisked the screen aside. She was perfectly calm as she glanced at the foot of the bed to take in the man's name and presumably his condition. Then she stood over him and gazed into his face. How dare you, the sister said quietly. And then again, how dare you speak that way in front of one of my nurses? (laughs) 
I beg your pardon, sister. It just came out. Sister Drummond looked with disdain into the bowl. Compared to what we've admitted these past few hours, Airman Young, your injuries are superficial, so you'll consider yourself lucky, and you'll show some, and you'll show some courage worthy of your uniform. Carry on, Nurse Talis. <laughs> I just love that this poor man is getting shrapnel pulled out of his leg, says the word fuck, and this woman comes over and is like, how dare you? It's also- Are you British? <laughs> Are you even British? (laughs) (laughs) It's also great because the whole time up until now, she has just been on Bryony, like about all these like mistakes she's making mistakes and problems. And so when she shows up, you think she's going to like cuss out or not cuss out, but like yell Yell at at Bryony. And then she turns to the man in bed. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. How dare you? Uh, there is a part we didn't mention in the book and movie where it is a flashback to Bryony and Robbie, where Robbie was helping Bryony learn to swim. Yeah. And she does this like stupid thing where she's like, would you save me if I was drowning? And Mm -hmm. he's like, sure. And she's like, okay. And jumps in the water (laughs) and he has to rescue her. Yeah. And on their way back, Bryony tells him that she loves him. Yeah. And he kind of... Is ang- he's angry at her. Yeah, he's pissed off. And he like, he almost like wants to laugh, but he's kind of just like, that was really stupid. Mm-hmm. And I really love that you become aware of this crush that Bryony had on Robbie, at least at one point in her life. Yeah. But you find out about it from Robbie's perspective, mm-hmm. as opposed to Bryony's, as if Bryony is like blind to what maybe is motivating her grudge against Robbie. I like I think it's interesting because Robbie thinks that this was why Bryony accused him that she was angry that he was into her sister and not her. But I almost think that this is him just trying to explain how mm. this could possibly happen and in reality Bryony doesn't even remember it. That's true. Like, she doesn't... And in the movie, she mentions it as, like, oh, I had a crush one time, but as soon as I told him that I loved him, I forgot about it. I think you could take it either way. Either way, it's interesting. Yeah, either Robbie trying to make sense of everything that happened, or this was, like, a deeper motive for Bryony that, like, she wasn't even, like, aware of on a surface level. Yeah. It's it's an interesting part to, like, factor into the story. It is. There's another part with Nurse Bryony where she and her nurse friend Fiona are tending to a bunch of like Navy soldiers. And it's talked about how they're super neat and they always like keep their bed and area really tidy and they they start to help like clean the, the bedding and sweep the floors and everything. Yeah. And her friend Fiona says, I don't think I could marry anyone who wasn't a Navy man. <laughs> Relatable content. Yes. Like, wow, look at the bar they're raising for men and taking care of the house. Uh, there was one little, it was like, honestly, just a line in the book, but it was so interesting. And I'm pretty sure it was Bryony who said it, or it was mm-hmm. from her perspective. But, you know, in the story, both Cecilia and Bryony seem to really look up to Leon and like him a lot. Like when he's returning yeah. to the house at the beginning, they're super excited for him. Well, after the events that transpired that, you know, ended up putting Robbie in prison and everything, uh, Bryony is later like reflecting on everything and she ends up saying... Leon turned out to be a grinning, spineless idiot. And I mean, you think about the fact that he was the one that brought 
Paul Marshall into their home. Yeah. Did he not know what type of person he was? Or if he did, just was he too stupid to notice? Yeah. And this idea of like looking up to an older sibling who like, and and you can see the signs, you know, that like Leon seems like very aloof and mm-hmm. like having a good time. And, and you know, and like you looking up to that as a kid and then you get older and you're like, wow, what a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. Especially when something like this happens and he's like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I just thought that was, it was like literally, I think just that one line, but I thought it was like so informative. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of lightning round in our episode. Thank you so much for listening. This was such a great one to do. And thank you again to Maria and to Deanna for requesting this episode. And if you requested this episode, Thank you as well. Yes, to Um, everyone. Thank you to everyone. If you would like to join our Patreon community, you do get priority episode requests. So definitely join us on there. There's a bunch of other benefits. You get bonus episodes. We've put out quite a few of them. Um, and a bunch of other stuff too. You know the drill. Yes. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a positive uh review is super helpful to us, as well as, you know, following us on Twitter or on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, you know, the work. Doing, wor- the, doing works. the thing. Doing the thing. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, though, again for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.